The second uh, reading comes from uh, the first Corinthians and we're going to go through the uh, chapter 13. <clears throat> and now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clang cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, <clears throat> and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection, as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope and love, but the greatest of these is love. Thank you, uh, Brian, for reading uh, that wonderful chapter on uh, this important topic on, on love. So let's uh, pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its description this morning of what true love, what real love looks like. And we confess this morning that we don't love the way we should. We confess, Lord, that we have much to learn in this area of love, relationships, both within this church and outside of this place. And Lord, we pray that your spirit will minister to each of our hearts today and that we will rejoice in the love that we have in you and your love for us that really gives def definition to what love is. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, friends, today we continue uh, our topic on real love in action. This is part two. Last Sunday we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 4, which is our memory text. Well, where can we find a true description of love? Uh, we hear so many songs about love, such as Love is in the Air. You know that song? Everywhere I look around. Right? I wouldn't sing it, but uh, you, you know what I mean, right? So you, you Google songs and you listen to uh, your radios. And I, I am a kind of guy that I love listening to uh, Smooth FM, my radio channel is set in my office to that. It's all nice, smooth, floating songs, right? Um, 
songs, so much written about love. And what really is love? I said last time that love is dangerous. Real love is dangerous. Real love is, in fact, risky. If you really look at our lives, each one of us, if we're really true and honest to ourselves, you would know, and you'd agree with me perhaps, or maybe you won't, that real love is tough. Real love will push us to places that we don't want to go to. Real love will challenge us to speak to people that we don't really want to talk to. Real love will challenge us in our relationships. How do we relate to one another in in the church, in the body of Christ? How do we relate to people within our own families? Is there love in our homes? You get the message, isn't it? It's really tough. We look at the world that we live in. What a shocking state of affairs in the past few weeks in this world. Nearly well over 600 people feared dead uh, through uh, plane, through the the loss of MH370, MH17, another plane that crashed recently, uh, and just a few days ago, another one in Algiers. We look at what's happening in the world in terms of the conflicts in Gaza and in, in Israel. And the suffering that we see there. And so what is love? Does it make sense? Does love make sense to us today? Does love make sense to you in your relationships? How do we relate to one another? See, the Apostle Paul has given us an excellent description of what real love kind of looks like. In uh, chapter 13, 4 to 7, he gives us this description. Verses 4 to 7, I think, displays the beauty of love's attributes. They're not so much, I believe, a definition of love's essence as a description of the fruit of love. They show us how love motivates certain actions or behaviors that conveys the message of real love. And so we have... Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Quite a challenging passage before us. Verses 5 to 7 is our text. What love is not. It is not rude, self-seeking, easily angered and so forth. So this morning, what I want to do is we're going to look at, we're going to spend some time looking at these five aspects of what love is not. And then we will look at verse 7, which tells us what love really is, the positives. And I don't plan to expand at length at verse 7 as they are grouped together. But certainly, I will expand on some other aspects of love this morning. Well, love is not rude. What does this word essentially mean? The word love, sorry, the word rude that is translated here means to behave indecently. To act in defiance of standards that results in disgrace. To be rude is to behave dishonorably. To be rude is to behave disgracefully. To be rude indicates and gives us an idea of an outrageous behavior. 
If you look at 1 Corinthians, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there was an outrageous and disgraceful, immoral behavior in the Christian church at Corinth. You have a look at that chapter and you ask yourself the question, how could this be in a church where there was sexual immorality that is, that is beyond definition that was taking place right there. And Paul addresses that issue. In a word, this word rude covers a wide range of meaning and so it also could include simply being ill-mannered towards others. To be rude, the way we speak with others, the way we act, the way we do things. It encompasses all of these things. It is a dishonorable, ill-mannered behavior. And Paul is saying, "Don't love is not rude. Love instead inspires a person to do what is honorable before God as well as men. Second Corinthians chapter 8:21. For we aim it, Paul says, at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. That is, that I can't claim and say, well, I'm a Christian, I live my Christian life in the closet, it's quite comfortable there, and not respond in love to those around us. And do what is right before God and before man. Further, we see that love is not self-seeking. That's what Paul says here. It is not self-seeking. This is really a tough call. It is a tough call because at the root of our humanness is self. Do you struggle with selfishness? Are we selfish? Where did it come from? You see, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapters 1 to 3, there everything was perfect. It was, they were absolutely unselfish. They had the perfect marriage. Uh, John was praying for marriage. That was the perfect marriage. Everything was fine. They had the perfect relationship between husband and wife. They communicated well. There were no arguments. No fights. Nothing. Everything was honky-dory. There was smooth sailing. There were, yeah, there love in the air. Everything was going well. No irritations, no nothing. Everything was good. And their relationship with each other and with God was not broken in any way. Life was perfect until Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And one of the main issues with Adam and Eve was about their self. They wanted to do their own thing and not what God had wanted them to do. They were self Focused. And ever since the fall into sin by Adam and Eve's selfishness, I believe, is a constant battle in our fallen human nature and in the world. And we see that in our text here, love does not insist on its own way. It is not selfish. Remember the context of this passage. It is set within the context of spiritual gifts in chapter 12. Therefore, it is a tragic mistake if we think, for example, that the message of 1 Corinthians 12 concerning spiritual gifts 
is all about ourselves. See what a superb and fantastic Christian I am. See the wonderful gifts that God has given me. You see, I'm an asset to the kingdom. I'm an asset to the church. That was some of the thinking that was going on here at one, in one Corinth, at the church at Corinth. You see, remember Jesus' disciples were arguing with one another about which of them was the, was the servant? Did they argue about that? No. What was their argument about? They were arguing about who is the greatest. Who is the best gifted guy here? Who is the greatest? And we read this in Luke chapter 22. A dispute also rose among them to which, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. They were like the Corinthian church. Who is the greatest rather than asking them the question, themselves the question, how could I serve? You see, spiritual gifts are for service. Spiritual gifts are for service to God. They are given by God to serve Him and to serve one another. Is that not the case? God has given us gifts. He has given us different gifts. We saw that in the, with, with, with Harry here and the body is made of different parts. And if the whole body was an eye, imagine what would be the situation. Imagine if the, if, if the hand would say, well, I'm not the face or I'm not the, the ear, I'm going on strike today. Imagine what would happen. Or the foot would say, well, sorry, I'm on strike because I'm not the hands. <laughs> You're in big trouble, isn't it? The body is made up of different parts and they all fit together. And Paul has brought this out in, Roman, in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in, in Romans chapter 12, the, the, the whole body, the, the contribution of gifts, so that the body of Christ functions together. That's what you see. We belong to each other. We need each other to reflect the fullness of the love of Christ. We need to see our gifts as instruments by which we can love and serve others and not be selfish. Brothers and sisters, we live in Christian fellowship so that we may serve others with our gifts and thus promote spiritual growth in the body of Christ. Sinclair Ferguson, uh, he writes this, When we exercise the gifts which Christ has given us, we are really saying to our fellow Christians and others, See how much the Lord Jesus Christ loves you and cares for you. He has sent me to serve you in this way. He is using my hands and feet, my lips and ears, to show his love. That's the point. It is not self-seeking. Now, do you have a challenge with selfishness? Are we self-seeking? You see, selfishness, I think, keeps propping up like weeds in a garden. Right? Uh, it is like weeds that keeps coming up. Now, Rose is a good gardener. She spent uh, last week, in, just this last week, she planted some beautiful herbs, coriander and parsley and all of those things which we will use very soon in our cooking of curries. It's so nice. We're looking forward to the fresh herbs. 
They make garlic bread. Yeah, anyway, stop. We'll stop. See, one of the plants that I'm, I, I'm not a great gardener, but I took time to plant one one, one plant in the in in our, in our little garden patch, and you guess what it is? It's a curry leaves plant, <laughs> and that is actually amazingly growing really well. But the point is, we had to get into that patch and get all those weeds out. And Rose said to me last week, Chris, we need to do some work in this garden and pull out the weeds. I said, dear, there's such a thing called Roundup. Let me get the spray thing and just... You can't do it, Chris. We've got to eat this food. We'll be poisoned now. You see what I'm saying? They, they keep coming up, don't they? All the time. So selfishness is like that. You pull them out, uh, like the weeds... And before long, they are back. And selfishness, I think, keeps popping up like the weeds. It is within ourselves. It's in the workplace. It's in our society. It's in the world. And sadly, selfishness can creep into the church, just like it did in the church at Corinth. It's about myself. If my needs are not met, then there might be a better offer somewhere else. (laughs) It's not asking yourself the question or myself the question, how can I contribute to the body of Christ? How can I give of myself to Christ and his work? But rather, what can I get? What can I get from the people of God? How much do they do for me? You see what I'm saying? There's a massive mind shift. Do you see that? There's a massive mind shift. I often ask myself the question, uh, what would I do if I'm not a minister of the gospel here? <laughs> Will I still be serving Christ with the passion and the love that God gives me? If I leave the ministry tomorrow, what would I do? I hope by God's grace, nothing will change. <laughs> I'll still be the same. I want, of course, be able to preach every Sunday, but I have opportunities to serve Christ the same way that I would serve just like you are doing. There's <laughs> no difference. You see, it is within ourselves, isn't it? We know from, from the reading of the New Testament and from our own experience that selfishness constantly attempts to overthrow unity. And so, how can we combat this menace? This menace. We are told to preserve unity by walking in a manner that is worthy in the gospel. We are told to be humble and gentle and enduring and loving and willing to serve. We are are told to put aside selfishness because it actually brings us down. We need to pray that we will walk uh, walk this gospel walk by leaving footprints of humility, just like Jesus did. See, do nothing out of selfish ambition, Paul wrote, or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not look into your own interests, but... Let's read it. But each of you to the interest of others. See, so let us not become self-absorbed. I'm not saying we are, but it's a very dangerous thing, isn't it? How can I serve? How can I give? How can I serve my brothers and sisters in Christ? You see, love seeks the well-being of others. It involves the giving of ourselves for the sake of others. Love is not easily, Paul says, also irritable. It doesn't get angry. To be irritable is to be easily provoked to anger. This is the third thing we see here in this text here. The word that is translated here means an outburst of anger. 
Let me ask you a question. What makes you really irritable or mad? What makes you really irritable or mad? Perhaps you are lined up at a shopping center and you're waiting for your passport and someone just overtakes you and comes and just parks their car there. And you've been waiting patiently. Does that make you really mad? Or you're at the shopping center. Oh, man. And you're in the queue there. You're waiting at some place. You've got your groceries. And you're waiting there. It's supposed to be only ten items. You've got your eight items. And you're standing there and waiting. And someone else is coming there. And you're standing there. Thinking, man, don't you see that sign there? It says less than ten items. And I keep counting how many items is in that bag. You've got like twenty items there. And the sign says less than ten. And I'm thinking to myself, if I was the guy there behind the checkout counter, I'd say, sorry, sir, go to the other queue. And you're standing there and you're wondering what's happened. Or someone, or you're in the queue, and this has happened to me, and you're in the queue and you got these things, and someone calls for a price check. Has that ever happened to you? So they're waiting for this price check on this item, this maybe tin tams or something, right? And they're waiting there. And you're in the queue waiting for the price check. Makes us mad, doesn't it? Or it can happen in the home. It doesn't take much to happen in our homes. It doesn't take much to happen in our, in our workplace. Right? It, it, it begins to irritate us. If you had a bad day, for example, at work or school, it is possible to become irritable or angry with those around you. And it is very possible that when you're angry at your workplace because things have not gone right there, that you bring those feelings of irritability or anger to the home and let out your frustrations on your poor family members who had nothing to do with your bad day, but they've got to cop the lot. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? How true that is, isn't it? The family cops it for no fault of theirs. And I have to learn that. You have to learn it. That when I leave the office, when I leave my office at home, because it's a temptation all the time to get to my office, that I don't take any of my frustrations out into the rest of the home. So it's, uh, it's a real challenge. So the Bible tells us, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Is it wrong to be, get angry? Is it wrong to be irritable? It depends on what it is. There are, there are times of righteous anger. For example, with the recent downing of the Malaysian Airlines MH17, which caused the death of nearly 300 people. Obviously, it causes us to be angry. All, we all understand the anger in such a situation. When Christians are being persecuted, we feel a righteous anger. And for justice to be done uh, to the perpetrators of such acts. I was watching Fox News the other day. Just two days ago, I recorded I said to Rose, have a look at it. You know, some of our Christians who are suffering so much in some parts of the world, it's unthinkable. You sit there and you get so angry. There's a righteous anger. There's a holy and a righteous anger, which is a justifiable anger. But we don't take justice into our hands. Of course not. We leave it with our God to deal with it. We have the justice systems to deal with it. We have the United Nations, the security councils to handle those kind of things. But the point is, friends, when we do get angry for other things, Paul says this, in your anger do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. I remember when I went uh, for marriage counseling before we got married 
My pastor said to me, oh Chris, I want you and Rose to come for marriage counseling. I said, what? I've already done a marriage counseling course as part of my studies. It's only marriage counseling. I said, Rose, that's weird. Anyway, we bought the two books and we went for counseling because good premarital counseling is very good. And then he said this, this, I forget about everything else, but this thing is fresh on my mind. He said, do not start an argument when you are just about to go to sleep. (laughs) Or any discussions. Settle things before you actually sleep. So that you can sleep peacefully and well. I mean, they are the things that can really, if it's unsettled, can affect a marriage, can affect relationships in a wider scheme of things. So we must take care that we do not sin in our anger. Don't become easily irritable. Don't let the sun go down. Don Carson, in his, uh, he says this, in personal relationships, love is not easily angered. It is not touchy. Oh my goodness, we're so touchy. If you do something... Oh, Oh man, you did this to me, you did this to me. Keeps going on, you know. With a, with a blistering temper, barely hidden beneath the surface of a respectable facade. Oh, oh, oh I'm alright, I'm keeping well. And then a little thing comes up and the outburst comes out, right? Just waiting for an offense, real or imaginable, at which to take. And Umbraj, I think that's how you might pronounce that. Now, that's Carson, he has his own language. Don Carson, read his books. That I, I just looked at this word, Umbraj. I think that's how you might pronounce it. You might have a different way. Or Umbraj, whatever you want to pronounce it. It means to be displeased or offended by others. You can easily feel and take offense by others. And we can offend people, and you can be easily be offended, imaginable or real in your life. So you imagine things that are really not real. And you get angry for things that are not actually true. Because it's an imagined thing. In your mind you're going thinking, ah, this one's angry with me, that one's angry with me, this one said this, this one said that. It may not be true at all. You see what I'm saying? And it causes us to be irritable. It causes us to be angry. It causes us to get bitter. See, love controls irritability. Get with it, friends. Because in this life, <laughs> have you never been hurt? Have you, have you never been hurt? Have you not hurt others through our words and actions? Have we never been hurt by others? It's a reality in life as well. It's a sad reality. But love keeps things under control. And I need to watch my own heart. Just as much as you do. To love others means that we, by God's grace, work hard to avoid getting angry over petty things. When Paul says love is not irritable or resentful, he's talking about a love that keeps us from flying off the handle for any slight provocation. Any slight thing. You see the facade? It's all good, but a slight provocation brings a barrage of things out. (laughs) Wow. You just have to scratch the surface. A little scratch, it's like a fountain, goes up. Think, man, I only scratch the surface, I didn't expect this. <laughs> and you want to run away from the situation. You know what I mean, right? So the Bible calls us to have self-control. It keeps no record of wrongs. 
Let's keep moving on because love, this is an accounting term for all accountants here and those who do accounts as a subject. It does not maintain a ledger of accounts that says on such and such a day. I mean, I keep a general account. My Rose is the accounts manager in my place, but I keep a general account. And my father, he writes everything that he has spent to the last cent. I don't know why he does it. <laughs> He's an accountant by profession. He still has a book and my mother sits there and says, I can't understand this. But everything is written. And his book is there. And every cent is there. To the, to the one cent. It's all accounted for. Good practice. Right? See, imagine if God would keep an account, a record of your sins and mine. What do we read in Psalm 130? We'll come back to that in a minute. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. It's willing to forgive. It does not keep accounts of wrongs. And it does not delight to count people's sins against them. Oh, on such and such a day, you did such and such a thing. On such and such a day, you put such and such a thing on Facebook or on on texts. Or you sent me an Instagram, or you said this, or you said that. It's all there, and you think, man. Do we keep a ledger account? <laughs> if, do you keep a ledger account if you're a married person? How many times your wife has wronged you, or the other way around? <laughs> Is that going to flourish? Is that relationship going to flourish? So you build, pull out the accounts book and say, oh, on the 30th of September 2010, Four years ago, it's recorded here, it's in the ledger book, <laughs> you did this, at this time, it's there. Imagine if God would do that to us, eh? where would you and I be? Where would you and I be? He doesn't. You see, that's what he's saying, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. She says, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. It does not rejoice. That is, real love includes hatred for evil. Love must be sincere. That's what Paul says. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. It takes no joy in unrighteousness. You see, love grieves over news, for example, of someone who has fallen into sin. Love grieves over the the downfalling of someone else. It does not delight in that. It does not rejoice in evil. Instead, love rejoices in the truth. Love is honest and will speak the truth in love. This is not some kind of hairy-fairy, fluffy love here. Love also speaks the truth, but in love. Now, you see, when you do something, when you talk to somebody, Hey, brother, I want to speak to you in love, but let me tell you. Did you do that? But I speak to you in love. (laughs) There is a way we handle things as well, isn't it? How do you speak to someone in love? You work that one out. <laughs> you try and work that out in your own situation. How would you practice speaking the truth in love to someone else? Love hurts. It confronts. None of us want to be confronted with our things in our lives. We get hurt. We get upset. It seems, it seems this way that people can have a go at their ministers, but if the minister would say anything about someone else, man, phew. You know what I mean? So we are walking on eggshells. <laughs> when we see the truth, we are even scared to even say anything because, man, if I say this, what would happen? 
You see, love speaks the truth. It hurts sometimes. It hurts, but it is truthful. Because if we don't, then our relationships will be very superficial. We had a friend many years back, husband and wife, and we went out for dinner. They invited Rosa and myself, so, wow, I'm always ready for a dinner. Anytime, anywhere, you call me, I will be there. Right? I sat there at the dinner, and uh, we were talking, and uh, they got talking about marriage, relationships, and stuff, and they said to us, we never have any disagreements between ourselves. We've never had an argument. They've been married for many years. We still laugh when we think about that. And I came home and said to Rose, is there something wrong with us? Or are they, are they absolutely perfect? We've never had an argument. Man, that must be like heaven. <laughs> What's the secret? I don't know, because it hasn't worked with us. We have intense discussions. That has to be. Your, your, your relationship has to grow in the context of understanding and love and, and, and different views and opinions and you put them both together. At the end of the day, you're united as a husband and wife and you, you work by God's grace in a strong relationship to love Christ and love each other. But yes, you might have different views and opinions. You see, love rejoices, celebrates the truth. Because if we don't, our relationships will be just superficial. Let me wind up then. As we move on, love also has the positives here, is it not? It always protects and always trusts. It always protects. Love, the word means it covers, means to cover. That's the original word here that means. The idea is not to go around exposing the weaknesses of others. Oh, she or he is such a person. Oh my goodness, have nothing to do with so and so. He or she is the worst person under the sun. Put the person out there and you, you let the thing go out and... You make yourself look, I'm a saint. I'm really the right guy. I'm the nice guy. So and so, man, is terrible. Have nothing to do with he or she. You see, love doesn't go around putting the faults of others out there to make yourself look saintly. You see what I'm saying? That, that, that's what it says. It, it covers, it protects. You see... One writer puts it this way, and a great definition. Love throws a kindly mantle over the faults. A kindly covering over the weaknesses and failures of others. Love always trusts. It is not suspicious. It trusts. It is always willing to see the best in others. That's what we see. It is in, a, in any relationship, there has to be trust. If it's not, then there's a major problem. It is trusting. It always hopes. It always looks forward. Love hopes for all things according to God's promises. Its confidence is in the grace of God. It is a refusal to take failure as final in a person's life due to God's grace working in that person's life. This kind of love is optimistic. There is a ray of hope in a Christian's life with all his or her weaknesses because God is doing a work of sanctification. And love always perseveres. It endures. Love is not overwhelmed. No matter what, how many disappointments may come along, it keeps going. Just as in a marriage, you don't just get up and walk out just because love is no longer in the air, right? <laughs> you committed yourself for what? Till death do us apart. That's the commitment. You see, love 
keeps going. It holds on. The picture here is that of a soldier who keeps soldiering on, even in the middle of the worst and intense battles it sustains. So friends, in this life, as we conclude, there will be hurts. Relationships will be stretched and some sadly broken. We live in a fallen world affected by sin. However, as Christians, we are not to give up on real love in action. What drives real love in action? What drives such love? It is God's love for us. How has he loved you? He loves us with all our faults, right? Does God love you with all your faults and your weaknesses? Come on. Yes or no? Yes. <laughs> right? He loves us with all my faults, all my weaknesses, with all my sin. He does not overlook my sin. Certainly not. He doesn't overlook your sins. He takes our sin or rebellion against him seriously. And this is why we read in John chapter 3 that he sent his son into the world. Our first reading that tells us, friends, that when God loved us, he loved us so much that he took our sin seriously and he sent his son to die on the cross. God does not and did not hold back his love. He shovels it. He embraces you. And he says, if you trust me, you are my child and I love you so much. He does not keep a record of our wrongs. Because if he does, we will never stand. How about you this morning? Have you experienced God's love in your life? Do you know this God? How about us in our relationships? Are we withholding our love from someone today? Are you talking terms with others? Or is there something that you need to work on? Including all of us here this morning, myself included. A love, friends, ultimately is this. A love that comes from God himself. Paul puts it well. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger? Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors. And verse 38, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus for us. Do you love Jesus? Remember, he loves you. And because he loves us, because his spirit works in us, I pray that God will help us to love those around us. Because ultimately, our love comes from him. It's not the sloppy love that's out there. Love is defined in Christ. And that makes the difference. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we haven't loved the way we should have. We all confess, Lord, this morning that, that our relationships uh, take turns in life, Lord. We get hurt from people, we hurt others. But Lord, above all of these things, we pray that we look at the cross of Christ, that Jesus was hurt. He was pat upon, whipped, crucified. And he took it all. He showed us what real love is. Help us, Lord, this morning to love you and to love others because you have loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.